playing that beautiful piece. Mother's Day. I hope that you have, still have a mother, because they're an incredibly wonderful gift that God has given to us. And if you do have a mother, I hope that you will be sure to uh, make her uh, aware of how much you love her and appreciate her today. Today is going to be um, different, to say the least, from what we normally do, uh, as we've kind of been going through the book of Acts and uh, systematically verse by verse. Uh, today is going to be a little different. Did you know that 80, the first 86 universities and colleges that were established in America were established for the express purpose of glorifying Jesus Christ? Yeah. And that includes uh, what we call the, the Ivy League schools, Harvard, Yale, Princeton. In fact, Harvard was the very first university established in America, and it had as its motto for Christ and his church. And there were three uh, rules that you had to obey at Harvard. The first was everyone should consider the main end of his life and studies to know God and Jesus Christ, which is eternal life. Second was seeing that God giveth wisdom, everyone should pray in secret, seeking wisdom from him. And third, everyone shall so exercise himself by reading the scriptures twice a day. Now that was Harvard in the first generation. What happened? Did you know that the public school system in America was established for the purpose of teaching children to read the Bible. That was why it was established. And today, uh, there are numerous cases against teachers for simply having their Bibles open on their desk. And some coaches have lost their positions because they refuse to quit praying at ball games. And we have to ask ourselves, what happened? How does that happen? You know, I have a friend uh, that was uh, the campus pastor, a campus pastor at Liberty University. And he said that one of, the, one of the parts of the job that he hated the most was when he had to call parents, especially parents that he knew to be godly people, pastors, missionaries, denominational workers, and to tell them that their child was being expelled for sexual immorality, for use of alcohol or drugs on the campus. What happened? How could that happen? Now, Karen and I have three children who grew up in this church. They were in church from the time they were in the womb. They've been in church. And thankfully, as adults, they have remained in church. Nothing would break our hearts more than to see our children walk away from their heritage, walk away from the church, walk away from God and become cold. Nothing. Even so, as a second generation of God followers, our children are not 
as t- intense about following God as Karen and I. And that's just that's just reality, and I think probably every first generation Christian in this room could you could probably express the same thing. Now, and today I want to talk to you about why godly parents have ungodly children. The principle that I'm going to uh, share with you today is the principle of of generations. And uh, this is not original with me. This principle has been recognized by God's people down through the ages and has been uh, presented to us in in various ways. But that there is this principle of the, the ages. And and I want to, uh, I want you to think about the spiritual characteristics of four generations. And these are characteristics, not absolutes. Listen very carefully, okay? These are general characteristics. These are truisms. They're not absolute. They're not true in every particular case, but generally they are true. We see these principles being expressed over and over in the, the scriptures, and, and so uh, the lines that are drawn are not, you know, hard. Uh, there's oftentimes a, a, a gradual, a subtle shift in these things. But, but these, are, these are principles. And we can see this principle most clearly in the books of Joshua and Judges. Now, Joshua, as we come to this end of this book, he is at the end of his ministry. And he's about to step off the scene. And so he is about encouraging the the people of God to continue to follow the Lord and to serve him. And this is his final address to the Hebrew people. In Joshua chapter 24, uh, verse 14, it says, Now therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and truth. And put away the gods which your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And he continues in verse 15. If it is disagreeable in your sight to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves today whom you will serve. Whether the gods which your fathers served which were beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me... And my house, we will serve the Lord. Now, Joshua is the leader of a first genera- of the first generation of, of God followers that entered the promised land. And they have seen God do some incredible things in the process of coming into the promised land. And they are strongly committed to the Lord. And Joshua is encouraging, you see, the next generation because he knows that every generation has to make their own decision about whom they will serve. And he's saying, he's, and he's admonishing them, he's encouraging them, be faithful to the Lord. And he's saying, God is worthy of your allegiance. You can follow him. And, and what we see in these two books is that with each generation, there tends to be a loss of commitment and faithfulness in serving the Lord. That's a principle. With each generation, 
there, there is a tendency to lose the intensity, the, the commitment, the faithfulness in serving the Lord. And in fact, there's only one generation between a on-fire generation and an ice-cold generation in many cases. Now, it's not always, remember, those lines aren't drawn hard, but boy, it's a principle that we see. And in your bulletin, I've included a chart that compares 12 facets of the spiritual lives of four generations. The spiritual lives of four generations are being considered, and there's 12 facets that we want to look at. I'm going to try to illustrate these, talk about them. And, and as we do, what I want you to do is I want you to think about where, what generation you are, what characterizes your life. And I want you also to think about what does my generation, where I am, how is that going to affect future generations, the people that come after me? So let's begin by comparing the, the character and the experience of these generations. Now, the first generation is characterized by commitment. Now, they commit to the Lord, as we saw, based on the wonders that they have seen God do in their lives. Look what it says in Joshua chapter 24 and verse 16. The people answered and said, Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. For the Lord our God is he who brought us and our fathers up out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage, and who did these great signs in our sight and preserved us through all the way which we went. Now, this is the first generation of God followers. And their experiences is that they knew God and they saw his great works. That's, that's, they're, they're committed because they know that God is real. You see, in the process, uh, they saw the Jordan River parted. And they walked through on dry land. This was the river at flood stage. They saw the walls of Jericho fall down. There's no doubt in their mind that God is real, that God is the deliverer, that God is the one who has established them. You see, this is, a, this is an incredible thing that they have seen. And then there are uh, first-generation followers of God today. Their experiences is, they, is that they know God. They, they've seen his works. Uh, the, these are people that will tell you how God miraculously delivered them from the power and the bondage of sin in their lives. How God has saved them, how God has transformed them, how he's changed them. They can tell you how God answers prayer, how God meets needs. Uh, They can tell you how he has used them to touch other people's lives. They they, they can tell you all these incredible things that they've learned to be on mission, that God is using them. They know God personally. They have an intimate relationship with him. They worship him. They delight in worshiping him. This is not mom or dad's religion. This is their religion. And we'll, we will signify this first generation with this, with this green chair. We call it the commitment chair. This is a generation of 
commitment. Then there's a second generation. It's characterized by compromise. Now, they serve the Lord, but they don't serve the Lord with the same intensity, with with the same fervency that their parents serve the Lord. Because you, why? Because they have not seen the mighty works of God personally in their own lives. They've just heard about it from their parents. So, so their experiences is that they, they know God, but they know about God's works. They've heard the stories. And you see, there's a second genera- generation of God followers today. They know about God. They've heard all the stories. Uh, And thanks to the commitment of their first generation parents, uh, they have been in church and Sunday school and vacation Bible school and gone to church camp and maybe even in Christian school all their lives. They know all about this. Uh, They were were likely saved in one of these ministries before age 13. And they've, they've never known the pain and suffering of the bondage of sin. They've been living under the protective umbrella, the righteousness of their parents. Their parents have laid out a life for them that has that's taught them righteousness and, and has protected them in an incredible way. They're beneficiaries. But at the same time, they have never really known a, the total dependence upon God. They've never known his his delivering his powerful works in that sense like their parents did. And for them, it's like their parents are just a little too intense about all this stuff. And we can just kind of like, you know, back up a little, ease off, lighten up. Don't take this stuff just too seriously. Just don't be fanatics about it. And because of the blessing and the affluence their parents' obedience has brought, they just they don't see the need see, for, to take it so seriously. They intellectually assent to biblical truth, but they've never experienced that deep down in them, themselves emotionally. We'll symbolize this chair of this uh, uh, generation with this second chair yellow chair we call compromise. So this is the second generation. But then there's a, there's a third generation. And this, this generation is characterized by conflict. You see, they don't know the Lord nor his works. Judges chapter 2 verse 10 says, All that generation also were gathered to their fathers, And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord, nor yet the work which he had done for Israel. Their experience is they do not, they know not the Lord, nor his works. This is a generation that for the most part is not saved. Tom Rainer estimates that today among the millennial generation, but people born between 1980 and 2000, he estimates the highest percentage of those who will be believers is about 15% in America. 
Others estimate that number much lower. Numerous other uh, um, uh, researchers say the number is more like 5%. This is a generation that does not know the Lord nor his works. In the, in the, in the book of um, Joshua and Judges, we just see that see, they don't remember the deliverance. That, that's, that's ancient history. It's just one generation, but to them, that's ancient history. It's like kids that, you know, they don't remember the Iraq War. We've got kids, they don't even remember 9-11. Them, that's ancient history. It's a separation. They don't feel the intensity. They don't feel the emotion that you and I feel about some of those things. Just way over there. And it's kind of crazy. So we'll symbolize this third generation here, conflict with the third chair, the red chair. Now the book of Judges, what we see is that God does something. Listen, this is very important. What we see in the book of Judges is that God sees what's happening and God allows conflict. God allows judgment, adversity to fall upon this generation. And when they experience the difficulties and the needs and they see that there's no way out except for let's try calling on this God and they begin to call out to God what does God do God raises up a judge and that judge delivers those people and guess what happens to those people well they come over here they've seen the mighty works of God and they come over here and they're in the first chair now but they've got a generation of kids that grow up behind them And they don't feel the same intensity that they did about it. It's just a little less. Let's don't take this stuff too seriously. And before you know, you've got another generation over here. They don't even know the Lord. And what happens? God allows the adversity to fall upon them. And the cycle goes on. You can see this cycle happening over and over and over again in the book of Judges. But listen, eventually... There's such a distance between those that the people who experience adversity, they don't turn to the Lord. They move further away. In fact, they become so far from God that there is a generation that eventually falls under the judgment of God and ceases to exist. Ceases to even be a kingdom, a nation anymore. And you see, there's a fourth generation, and we'll call that uh, generation the confusion generation. See, they not only don't know the Lord, they are greatly confused about religion and all things spiritual. In, in his book, uh, The Millennials, Tom, Tom Rayner says that among millennials, and again, that's 1980 to roughly 2000, that generation, he says the people born that, during that time, that there is no majority spiritual position in the entire generation. Nothing dominates as far as a religious view. 
He says they have such a hodgepodge of beliefs that giving meaningful labels to them is almost impossible. For example, uh, they ask uh, Brandon if he was a Christian. And he, he responds quickly, sure I am. And when they ask him to articulate his Christian beliefs, he says, well, most Americans are Christians, and so I guess I am too. I think my parents are Christians, but I've never really asked them. I have a pretty good feel for Jesus. I'm sure he's a good man, and, and like most religious leaders, he and Billy Graham would, would be pretty high on the list. And when they ask him about the afterlife, he responded, well, first of all, no one can really know, have a clue, what happens when we die. I guess there's enough evidence to indicate that somehow we live on. But I'm not sure what that looks like. I kind of believe there might be several possibilities. Well, some people, uh, for, some people may decide, excuse me, uh, um, some people may decide to come back as someone else. You know, reincarnation. Others may just want to retire and go to some good place in the afterlife. Maybe some have scores to settle, so they have to deal with some folk and before they can move on. That's probably where we get our ghosts. I don't know, y'all shaking your head like me? See, like many millennials, Brandon has a syncretistic view of religion. That's where you take bits and pieces from various faiths and even non-faiths and you mix them together and make your own unique belief. Never mind that they may contradict one another or that they don't make sense. In fact, when you get here, you see they're so indifferent they don't even worry about trying to work it out. It's not even worth trying to make it fit. Because it's no concern. And many even call themselves nuns because they don't want to be associated with any kind of religion, anything spiritual. We'll symbolize this fourth generation with the label confusion. Now, let's think about some examples, a few more examples from the Bible. We've already looked at Joshua and the elders and the judges. Um, Let's look at Abraham. Abraham was a pagan. Remember that? Pagan had no clue who God was, but God revealed himself to him. And Abraham believed God. He believed that God was going to make he and his barren wife a great nation. And he moved over 450 miles across the desert to a place he had never been before. In faith, trusting God. And, and when, when Abraham arrives, the first thing he does is he builds an altar to worship God. The second thing he does, he digs a well to take care of his family and his flock. You know what that means? That means to Abraham that spiritual things are more important than material things. That God takes priority in his life. But Abraham had a son. His name was Isaac. And Isaac also traveled. And when he arrived to his destination, the first thing he did was to dig a well. And then he built an altar to the Lord. 
showing that a subtle shift has occurred. Now the material things of life are more important than the spiritual things. You see, how many second-generation Christians have a better job than dad? Are more educated, more sophisticated, more worldly, more cool. You see, first Christian, first generation Christians change the world. Second generation Christians become a part of the world. And only after God uh, is, continues to do his work was this man con- continue to be able to be, con- to be faithful because God was promised it. And then Isaac had a son. Remember his name? Jacob. Jacob was a man of conflict until late in his life he was a liar and a schemer and a cheater. Do you know why he was doing all that? Because he had learned the lesson from dad that the material is far more important than the spiritual. And he was going to get all he could get. And, and until God intervened in his life and revealed himself supernaturally to him, he would not change his course. In fact, he even wrestled with God over this. It took a supernatural intervention of God in this man's life to turn him around. Wow. We could go on, but let me just say that there's a third example, David. David was a nobody shepherd boy. But God came to him and chose him. And you know, this man was so committed to the honor of God that he was willing to face a giant. And he eventually defeated that giant and became king. David was a, had a passion for God, which is evidence in his psalms and his prayers. David was a man after God's own heart. But yet, you know what? He had a, he had a son. His name was Solomon. And Solomon was a man of compromise. Though he began great he compromised. He began to marry pagan wives and bring corrupt religion into the nation. He was a man more educated, more sophisticated than his father, and yet he compromised. He, he prayed great prayers. He was in church, but his heart was not there, whole heart. He was divided. He, was, he got caught in the trap between money and material and, and, and sex and power. Those things became more important to him than anything. And when he had a son named Rehoboam, well, you know what Rehoboam did? Rehoboam divided the kingdom because he wanted his power. He wanted his take. And he, just, he divided the kingdom. And you know what happened after Rehoboam divided the kingdom? Well, there were the kings that went up to the north. And they couldn't go to Jerusalem to worship anymore. And they got really confused. Where are we going to worship? But they not only got confused about where we're going to worship, they got confused about who they were worshiping. No, all of a sudden, they made, they made another god altogether that they're worshiping in the northern kingdom. And what happens? The judgment of God falls on the nation of Israel and they are taken into into captivity by the Assyrians 
and they never are seen again. Judgment. Confused. What about life decisions? The commitment generation asks, what does God think? The compromise generation asks, what do others think? What will grandma think? What will the church people think? What will my neighbors think if I drive that car or dress this way? Third generation, what do I think? What do they think? What do I think? I've seen your futility. What do I think? And then when you get over here, they say, you know, I don't care what God thinks. I don't care what you think. I'm just going to do whatever's right in my own eyes. Which was the nation, which was the time of the judges. What about faith? Well, the person of conviction says, listen, I know the Bible is the inspired, inerrant word of God. I know that God created the world in six days. I know that Jesus Christ died on the cross and he was buried and rose again the third day. I know that he's coming again to receive me. I know that God answers prayers. I know that God transforms lives. It's a conviction. I know it. But then the second generation, they speak about beliefs. Well, I, I believe, I believe that the Bible is the word of God. Yeah, I, I believe that God probably created, probably created the world in six days. Yes, I'm pretty sure that Jesus died on the cross for me. See the subtle shift in the attitude? This third generation, they get here and it's, it's questions. Is the Bible really the word of God? Did God really create the world in six days? Did he, I mean, did he really die on the cross? Did, did this man really raise from the dead? Over here, it's opinions. Everybody ought to be able to say whatever they want to say. And there ought to be no judgment about it. Everybody just ought to be, be able to believe whatever they, because it doesn't really matter anyway. The only thing that matters is if you say, I know, well, then you're the enemy. What about attitudes and actions? Well, the first generation has right attitudes and right actions. See, they come to church because they want to. They worship because they want to. They read their Bible because they want to know. They want to have a relationship with God. They want to know him. They give because they want to. Well, the, the second generation, well, they have the right actions, but oftentimes the wrong attitudes. They often come to church because, well, they ought to. That's the way I was raised. It's a habit now. Mom and dad expect it. They ought to. I ought to. I, I, do, I serve because, well, I ought to. I give, well, because I ought to. Third chair, wrong attitudes. Wrong actions. I don't come to church. I'm not giving. I'm not doing anything. Fourth chair says, there is no right or wrong. It's morally relative. Whatever, whatever is good, whatever floats your boat. It's a whatever attitude. Doesn't matter. 
one second generation father whose son was getting ready to go to college said to his son, son, when you go to that college, you do not let them steal your faith. That son went off to college and he lived a life of drunkenness and immorality. And it, when he graduated, they had a party. And at the end of that party, the father and the son kind of found themselves alone together. It was an awkward kind of situation. And the son says to his father, Well, Dad, I suppose you're pretty disappointed with me. And the dad says, Well, yes, I am, son. I told you when you went to that college, do not let them steal your faith. He said, Dad, it wasn't the college stole my faith. Before I left, I took your Bible off your desk and I cut out of it the book of Jonah and I put you a note in that place and it said, Dad, when you get to this place, call me. He said, I've been waiting for that call for four years. And you see... This generation often sees the difference between what we say we believe and what we actually do. And to them, it means that's not real. That's not real. About salvation. I told you the first generation of people that often have been saved after the age of 13. They've encountered the difficulties of life. They've come often come into the bondage of sin. It's had a sway and a held power over them. And they have come to realize that Jesus Christ is the means of deliverance. And when God delivered them from their bondage, well, man, they are excited and they are committed to the Lord. They know he's real. They know his power. They know he answers prayer. They know he changes people. But then there's that second generation. They're they're often saved as children before the age of 13. One of these wonderful ministries that we have. And, And oh well that's great. And third generation They're not saved for the most part. Again, 5 to 15%, whatever statistics you want to take. And the fourth generation, they're not only saved, not saved, but they may be atheistic. I don't want anything to do with God. I don't even believe in God. Then what about church attendance? Well, the first generation goes to church to meet God. They're excited because they know God is there. This is real. When we're singing those songs, this is testimony. I'm singing this because I've experienced this. This is real. These people oftentimes, oh, that's a nice sentimental story there. I'm glad all these people seem so excited about it. Oh, yeah, these are, yeah that, does, that does comply with the things that I've learned. The third generation quits going. Why bother? And the fourth generation, they may be a part of the group now that wants freedom from religion. They just want to wipe it all out together. 
perspective. The first generation, well, it's God-centered. These people are full of God. When they talk, guess what comes out? God. They talk about God and what God has done. They relate life to God. He is their life. The second generation, well, they're trying to get their life full. They're trying to get their life full through, uh, and they're they're consumed with their job, their career, their house, their children, sports, hobbies, travel. This is, this is, this is what takes up their time and energy. And, and, And the second chair almost always, almost always becomes about the material. And it consumes their time and their energy. And in the midst of all of that activity for the material things, second generation Christians start saying things like this. I've noticed something's going on with my kids. I've noticed my kids have more non-Christian friends than Christian friends now. I've noticed I have to drag them kicking and screaming to church now that they've gotten a little older. We've gotten some arguments in it, about it lately, but and when, I, when I put my foot down, well, they call us hypocrites. They say we're so naive that we're just kind of stuck in the past. You know, I, I begin to suspect that my son is looking at some things on the Internet that I don't even want to think about. I begin to notice that when they've been coming home late at night that I, I think I'm smelling some alcohol on their breath. You know, I think my child may, may be sexually active. I, I don't want to mention it because it'll just be a fight, big fight. It, I just, I'll take peace at any cost. You know, I, I, maybe they're right. Maybe it's still the day that we live in. I just, I just want them to be, I just want them to have safe sex. Yeah, I just want them to, if they're going to drink, just come on and let's, let's, let's put them over here where they'll be safe and not out in the car. It's a perspective thing. The third generation tends to be empty. And you know why? Because they have seen mom and dad pour their entire life into the material world. And they are empty. And they say, I don't want that. I don't have an alternative. I don't have an alternative. But I don't want that. And then when you get here, in this confused generation... And you're looking at this people that just, that generation blew it. This generation doesn't even know what in the world's going on. And now I just feel hopeless and I feel angry about it. And man, all I can do is just maybe we can just change the world. Maybe we can stop global warming. Maybe we can, you know, we can make the world socialist. Maybe we can do, do something. They're confused. They don't even know where to go, what to do, because they don't even have an alternative. They're so far from God, they don't even think about God being an option. 
how quickly it happens. Nature. The first generation is what Paul would call spiritual. Why? Because the Holy Spirit sits in the driver's seat of their lives. He directs their lives. But he would call this next generation, he calls them carnal. Why? Because they have the Holy Spirit, only they don't let the Holy Spirit rule. He's not in the driver's seat. The flesh is in the driver's seat. And this this generation, he calls them natural. Why? Because they don't have the Holy Spirit. They're not even saved. And this, this generation over here, they're mystical. You know what mysticism is? It means there's something, something going on. People have got a spirit, uh, something's going on. I don't know exactly what it is. I don't really care. But something's happening over here. And every once in a while, I have this tendency to be interested in it. What's your temperature? If I were to ask you, what is your spiritual temperature on a scale of 1 to 10, 1 being cold, 10 being on fire, what would you say? What's your temperature? Listen, if you're in the first chair, you're hot. Your number is high. Not your sleep number, but your spiritual number. If you're over here, you're in the middle. You're lukewarm. Remember remember Jesus talking about lukewarm? If you're over here, you're cold. If you're over here, you're just indifferent. You don't even care. You're thinking, why am I here? When are we going to go to lunch? Believe me, all these generations are represented here today. What chair are you sitting in? And how is it going to affect the generation that comes after you? That's a question you ought to be asking. I can't answer that question for you. Only you can answer that question. What chair am I sitting in, and how is that going to affect the future generation? You know, I I think about my own life. I'm a person who was, was, I was in this chair as a kid. My mom was in this chair. My dad was seen to be <laughs> in this chair. And as a result of being in this chair, God allowed adversity, discipline, judgment, bondage to come upon my life. I was in bondage to sin. I won't bore you with all the details, but I was in bondage, deep bondage to sin. And I had enough connection to look across and wonder, is that going to be of any help? And looking at my mom in the second chair, it wasn't. It wasn't enough. It took more hardship, more difficulty, until finally I cried out to God and God delivered me from the bondage of sin that overwhelmed my life, tore tore me up, and, and God then set me in this chair because I know God is real. 
I know the Bible is true. I know that God changes people. I know that the Holy Spirit really works in your life and changes you. I know that God can can deliver you from the power of sin. I know all those things. And I was here. And you know what? When I got here, I began to pray for my dad who was over here. And I did it with a passion. I fasted. I prayed. I saw my dad dying, literally dying. Saw him literally resuscitated on the floor in his own blood from alcohol poisoning. I saw him resuscitated. I saw God raise him up and I saw God save him and put him in this chair. And I saw God take my mom and put her out of this chair into this chair. I know God is real. And I saw God take my life, put me in the ministry. I saw God take us through seminary, provide for all of our needs. He answers prayers. I saw God give us children when nobody said we could have children. I saw God do incredible things on the way. And here's the truth. God put me in the ministry. A few years later, guess what happens? Praise God. Ah, praise God. Do you know how easy it is to move from this chair to this chair? It's easy. And there have been at least three times in my life when God has come over here and smacked me around in this chair and said, get back over there, boy. He does that. Listen, we're all going to battle. We're all going to battle these chairs. And the lines are never black and white. They're not absolute, but there's a sense. We know when we're hot. And we know when we're lukewarm. And we know when we're cold. And we know when we don't even care. Men, I know it's Mother's Day. But I want to ask you a question. Where are you sitting? Which chair are you sitting in? And what difference is it going to make for the next generation? What's the difference going to make for your son, for your daughter? What difference is it going to make? It will have an impact. Listen, if you're here and you feel pretty good about yourself, you better be worried about the next generation. That's just the truth. I'm not trying to scare you. I'm trying to show you the the reality of it. And you know what? um, When we read the book of Joshua, we see that God God asked Joshua to publicly declare himself. You know what Joshua did? He took these big rocks, these big stones, and he laid them down in front of the generation, the next generation. You know what he said to them? It's for me and my house. We will serve the Lord. And he challenged them, get a rock. Make the commitment and serve the Lord. Maybe you've been sitting in the second chair. Listen, the first chair is open. 
It's always open. Maybe you've been sitting here in the third chair. Listen, it's open. And God can even take people out of that chair and put them over there. He does the incredible. You have a choice to make today. Everybody has has a choice to make. That's the point of Joshua's sermon. Everybody's got to make the decision. Where are you going to be? And there are some of you, I, I got a feeling that they're here today, that you're saying, you know, I know I'm not perfect. I don't have it all together. I know that I'll mess up many times. And I know that I certainly cannot do this without God's help. But I'm ready to say, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Some of you are ready to say that. And to show that commitment in just a minute, I'm going to ask you to stand right where you are, in front of God, in front of your wives, your children, and everybody, to declare that's your intent. I'll ask you in just a minute. You can stay standing. All right, brother, that's good. You know what I'm going to ask you to do? I'm going to ask you to pray. Let's pray. Let's close our eyes. Let's bow our heads. Let's, let's focus on the Lord right now and ask God, God, show me clearly. If he hasn't already done that, show me, Lord, which chair I'm sitting in. If you're in the first chair, praise God. You're just rejoicing today. You're just excited. And you're just already, you're already praying for other people right now. Because you know that God's word's gone forth and you're ready to uh, celebrate with him. Some of you are struggling. You're uncomfortable. That's because God's calling you to get up out of that chair that you're in and get in the first chair. What does God want you to do? Are you willing to do it? In just a moment, I'm going to ask you to stand where you are as a a, a demonstration of your heart. Father, right now I ask you to help us. You, You have spoken to us. You've confronted us about this issue. You've convicted us, I'm sure, as you convict my heart. And I ask you, Lord, to help us now to respond honestly, genuinely to you and that you would use this time to strengthen us as families and as servants of yours. And I ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Now, I want you to listen very carefully.